You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I invited one of my favorite guests, Lynn Alden, back on our podcast. We start out talking about what money really is and transition into a discussion of how to imply the takeaways for our portfolios. As you will soon learn, Lynn Alden is such a wealth of knowledge. You will learn about the role of money all the way back from the ancient Greek democracies up to the bead money in Africa, tobacco currency in the colonial period up to today's modern monetary system. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Let's jump to it. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and dear listener, we are in good company today. With us, we have the one and only Lynn Alden. Lynn, welcome back on the show. Thanks for having me back. To kick this episode off, uh, perhaps you can tell the story of the ancient Greek democracy in 6th century BC that used partial jubilee as a solution to avoid a catastrophic class conflict and how that relates to where we are in the death cycle today. You have something that builds up, you know, decade to decade, even generation to generation, you know, two or three generations, and it doesn't self-correct enough, right? So there, there's basically the these structural issues in society where things build up and get worse and worse. Basically, things have a tendency to concentrate, especially the way we structure things. And so you have a given society where, let's say, farmers, you know, they 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 harvest crops, you know, they have a big harvest every year. But of course, they have to pay for things throughout the year. So they might, for example, use debt with the promise to pay them back once their harvest comes in. And that might work for 10 years in a row. But on the 11th year, they have a crop failure. And suddenly they find themselves in massive debt that they can't pay. And back then, you could become a debt slave. You know, There are all sorts of ways to deal with that in society. Problem is that over time, you have kind of things build up where wealth consolidates and then, you know, it also feeds on itself. So once you have, once you're wealthy, you're able to influence politics more, right? You you have the ear of the king, or if it's a republic, you might have more more voting power. You can, you know, back then especially, only rich people could really vote anyway in in societies that were, you know, republics. So you can further make the rules in your favor, and you get this tendency to consolidate one way or another. And and societies had to deal with that in different ways. And we have records going back to ancient Sumeria, Babylon, and Greece. And the one I used in this piece was Plutarch wrote about, you know, the ancient King Salon in Greece. And this was a, an excerpt from Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant. And it goes, I'll just read it because it's actually a really good paragraph. And in the Athens of 594 BC, the poor, finding their status worsened with each year, the government in the hands of their masters and their corrupt courts deriding every issue against them, began to talk of violent revolt. The rich, angry at the challenge to their property, prepared to defend themselves by force. Good sense prevailed. Moderate elements secured the election of Salon, a businessman of aristocratic lineage, to the supreme archonship. He devalued the currency, thereby easing the burden of all debtors, although he himself was a creditor. He reduced all personal debts and ended imprisonment for debt. He canceled arrears for taxes and mortgage interest, he established a graduated income tax that made the rich pay at a rate 12 times that required of the poor. He reorganized the courts on a more popular basis. 
he arranged that the sons of those who had died in war for Athens should be brought up and educated at the government's expense. The rich protested that these were that these measures were outright confiscation, and then the radicals on the other side complained that he had not redivided the land. But within a generation, almost all had agreed that his reform reforms had saved Athens from revolution. And so basically, when we talk about this kind of multi-decade, multi-generational compoundings, usually what you have is these sharp events at some point where either people revolt, right? Everyone's, everyone's a debt slave now. So they say, wait a second, we outnumber these guys 100 to 1. Let's just go burn their house down. So there's that. Or they, you know, through politics, basically say, okay, this is not sustainable. The courts are corrupt. We, we've kind of, you know, we have so entrenched cronyism and the policy is not good. Let's, let's like sharply reverse some of this without, without going too far. And so this was an example where they managed to moderate it. Most examples are not that successful. And so this is kind of shows over time that when you have massive debts and wealth concentration built up in a society, there's usually some sort of release valve that is in various ways, it's painful for various groups. And then depending on how it goes, it could be extraordinarily painful for everyone if you have kind of a, a collapse or a revolution of some sort. It's just very interesting to see what we can learn and then what, what happens. We know just in times like these, you know, it, it can go either way and I think historically, it has typically ended with a conflict. I've seen some stats that in situations like these, uh, with, a, with a declining power and, and, and a new superpower coming, the probabilities of war are around 75% historically. But you know, we always hope for something, clearly not a war, and for a more peaceful solution. But I just hope that we, are, we, we can take a page from, from the Greek playbook. If not doing exactly like it, I, that's not my point. So please don't read between the lines, but just more a, a hope that uh, it won't go uh, into war, anything like that. Len, shifting gears here a bit, but not, not quite. In episode 426, you recommended the book Money Dethroned uh, to our audience. And I want to say that central to the book was that uh, the basement was the core of falling empires. And we both read Redelio's book, The Changing World Order. And in that book, it goes through how the English Empire took over from the Dutch, only to be taken over from the U.S., and now we're at a point where the Chinese are gaining relative global influence at a rapid pace. As I'm reading the changing world order, money debasement in the book is surely a factor, but it's not the central theme of falling empires. It's more a derivative of something that happened before. The cause and correlation is, is very important to, to separate here. I am curious about in which place you think currency debasement has in the rise and fall of empires? I would side with Dalio on that, essentially, that over time, that currency devaluation is kind of an offshoot of, of declining you know, national status, empire status. Empires are kind of inherently unnatural things, right? It, it's unnatural for one group of people to become so dominant compared to all the surrounding regions and then the whole world. And that takes a lot of organization and momentum and structure to change because uh, over time entropy wears that down. There are asymmetric attacks that that competitors can use against that that group, right? So things that are organized come with a degree of fragility to them compared to chaos, right? So you centralize attack points and you have more to defend. And so over time, empires start to just entropy decays on itself. And I would say that the same thing is true for a a currency that is in human power. That if humans are able to influence the currency in any way, that eventually they will start cheating. They will start, say, having gaps for one reason or another, and then having to debase and having to manipulate it over time. 
And so I would say that both currency debasement and falling empire status are the idea that both of them require basically the rulers to be perfect forever in order to not fall. And of course, given a long enough chain of rulers and governments, they're not perfect, and so they will eventually fall. But going back to the, the book, you know, Money Dethroned, I think the, the big takeaway I have from that book is less about that and more about kind of what happens when different society, like how, how money works in different societies, especially about commodity money. So I think, I think my takeaway from that book is that money is kind of a technology that, you know, a, a money can work for a while, but if then if it comes into contact with an external culture that has better technology, they can undermine your money. And that, you know, things that are scarce in one region might be abundant in another region. And that over time, as our technology changes, our usage of, say, commodity money changes. And so, I, you know, that's kind of one of my big takeaways of the book is basically this historical look at how money works. And, you know, the book didn't really cover this, but an interesting point is that, you know, there's that, I believe it's called the Dunbar effect, basically the, the research that suggests that, you know, the, the typical human person can keep track of about 150 people, more or less. You know, we can, we can keep track of 100, 150 people. We know what is it, what, you know, what are their traits? What is our past relationship with the person? Like, what did they do for us? What did we do for them? kind of how do we stand relative to each other. And so if you have a small enough group, if you have like a tribe, you don't really need like a money because it's a small enough set of interactions that, you know, you can rely on barter, you can rely on, it's basically kind of like tribal communism, right? It's a big clan, it's a big family. Status is derived, you know, through through your position, right? So if you're really good at something, you might eventually become the chief. Otherwise, you might be more shunned in society. But basically, they can account for all their needs and, and abilities uh, because they have a small enough group that they all know each other. But once you go above a certain size, once you're at town status, civilization status, you need a more liquid accounting tool to, to keep track of things. And that has to be resistant to debasement, resistant to manipulation. And so that's generally why you see it. If you go to all these different cultures, once they, once they get to a significant size where you know, either their own unit is big enough or that they're interacting with enough external groups that they don't necessarily fully trust, that you start to see a development of a money. And basically it's, it's you know, in those early stages, it ends up being some sort of commodity that is desirable, uh, hard to produce, but pretty liquid and fungible. And so that they're basically some commodity gets like a monetary premium on top of it, where it might be used for its utility, but it's even more used because it's recognized as something that you can hold and that eventually you know, that, that it's, it's the most saleable good, that the, you can always find someone who will want this thing because it's, it's, it's almost universal. And so Money Dethroned kind of goes through, you know, from the perspective of travelers and other people, how different societies had these, these monies emerge over time. And on that note, we often hear that the best money wins. And implicit, uh, whenever we talk about the best monies, we often talk about currency that have the fewest units that can be supplied compared to the current stock of those units. Some people might know of this as the stock to flow model. And gold could be one example because the supply of gold only increases by 1.5% annually. Do you agree that the best money always wins? And if it does, is that consistent with Redalio's observations that historically money has always followed the same three steps? Hot money, claim on hot money, fiat money, and then back to, to hot money again. The best money isn't always the absolute hardest. There's other attributes like this, the ease of transaction, the divisibility, the speed with which you can move it around. And that's 
why I would argue, for example, that for the past 150 years, you know, paper currencies have really kind of outpaced gold because even though gold's harder, in, in practical terms, it, it has trouble keeping up. So for thousands of years, commerce and money moved at about the same speed, which is the speed of humans, right? So we go around on horses and ships and on foot and we transact with each other with gold, silver, copper pieces, or even our ledgers. Even if we started keeping ledgers, those physical ledgers could still only move at the speed of humans. We had to literally bring them somewhere if you want to give them to another city. But with the introduction of telecommunications equipment in the 1800s, first with the telegraph and then the telephone, we lay these undersea cables under the Atlantic starting in the 1800s. And so, you know, by the time you got to late 1800s, you know, institutions around the world could, you know, talk to each other almost instantly. And so you could update ledgers and perform certain types of transactions on multi-continent basis far faster than, than physical goods, including physical money, could settle. And so gold was no longer able to keep up with the speed of human commerce. And that really further, I, I think, led to the need for abstraction. So historically, gold was abstracted because it had limits on its divisibility. Whereas now we also had the even more important thing where we had limits to its speed relative to the speed we want to transact. So we had to abstract it more. And that eventually opened up the divide between gold and paper currencies. And then eventually they could be separated. Whereas if, if in some other world, if, we could, if there was like an element like gold that we could just like mentally teleport to each other, it would have been much harder to ever introduce paper currencies because it would have been seen right away as like an inferior product. But because gold had those limitations and there was an advantage to using paper claims for gold, it, it, it was able to lead to that, that separation. So, you know, in many ways, even though dollars are less hard than, than gold, they are, you know, they have other advantages uh, over the past 150 years or so uh, that has allowed them to, you know, at least, you know, kind of keep up with gold and that more people use dollars than use gold, even though gold is a better store of value. So, so gold, as its hardness is better, retained its store of value property, but it kind of lost the medium of exchange and unit of account aspects to what is basically better technology. When you look at pure commodity monies, the stock to flow ratio is, is pretty paramount. There's actually a really good example in the early American colonies. There was almost like an accelerated version of, of how not to use, like why, why most monies fail. And basically in the, you know, the pre-American, before the revolution, you had these the southern colonies like the 1600s, and they started using tobacco as money. They grew tobacco. It was a high value crop. It was you know, reasonably liquid and fungible. And so they started using tobacco as money. And you could, they even made it legal tender in some, in some colonies like Virginia, where you could pay your taxes, you could pay all debts in tobacco. And so it became money. Problem is that when you, when you put on a monetary premium to something, you basically give everyone an, an incentive to make more of it. And so tobacco is not very resistant to debasement, so anyone could go and plant more tobacco. And so they started to inflate the value of tobacco away. Basically, the prices of things as diamond in tobacco began to increase. And then so the government imposed restrictions. They said certain classes of people couldn't grow tobacco, or there's only so much tobacco that can be grown a year. They're trying to artificially you know, increase the stock-to-flow ratios. Then you had another problem where, unlike gold, tobacco is not very fungible, right? So there's, there's higher quality tobacco, there's lower quality tobacco. And so there's an incentive to pay your debts in, in you know, this, this marginal tobacco, the worst tobacco, 
and then to say sell the good tobacco overseas or smoke that or whatever you want to do that use that for better purposes give other people the worst ones so you basically have gresham's law in play where the weak money drives out the good money so everyone's trading around the bad tobacco then they had to say okay well we need external auditors to come in and check the quality of tobacco so they put tobacco in warehouses grade it and then trade paper claims for that tobacco so that you know they basically had to try to increase the fungibility and then eventually they disabandoned the whole situation because it was untenable and so that's kind of an accelerated version of why any commodity that's not resistant to debasement meaning it, it, it can't maintain a high stock to flow ratio given our level of technology ultimately fails as money and that's you know, when you when you kind of look at the broad spectrum, all the different commodities of history, that's one reason why gold keeps reemerging. Because no matter how good our technology is, we're not really good at making more gold. So in the in the 1970s, for example, when the price of gold went up more than tenfold, if you look at the gold production, it, it barely changed at all because we just literally don't have the capability to make a ton of new gold in a short period of time. I'm holding this amazing blog post up. It's another one of Lynn's great blog posts. The title is What is Money Anyway? I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. And you tell different stories about commodities money. I love all of them. One of, the, one of them is about African beats, uh, which is amazing itself and, and really an illustration of, of what you're saying there about new technology coming in. I don't know if I could, could ask you to, uh, to share that story with the audience. Yeah, so the African beat story, it's actually, that's, that's probably the most tragic one, one, one of the most tragic examples in that piece. Because so basically you had, for, for a long period of time, you had uh, different groups in West Africa using beads as money. So again, that, that kind of goes back to the idea that money is technology. So what is, what is rare, liquid, fungible, and desirable in an area could be different in another area. So in, in that region, they didn't have glass making technology. And so glass beads were very rare and desirable. And then also you had a, a pastoral society so you'd be, you know, you, you might have like, you know, your herd of animals, shepherd, you're moving around. So you want to be able to bring your money with you. So you could, you could literally wear your beats. You could wear your wealth. And so that was a, a useful type of money. They also use things like, you know, fine fabrics and things like that and, and, and certain kind of herbs. That these, these were money-like, money-like instruments, but beads were uh, a key one for them. And the tragedy was that Europeans, who at the time had glassmaking technology, when they were traveling around and they would identify and say, these, these people like to use beads as money. And so we can use that to our advantage. We can, we can easily, it's cheap for us to make fancy glass beads. And then we can start trading it for things of actual value. We can buy their animals, we can buy their resources. And then sadly, you know, the, there was a slave trade. So you could, you could buy slaves with, with these beads that you could make for almost free. So they became known as slave beads in, in some circles. But then, of course, the, the Africans had, you know, they had resistances against this. So if the Europeans flooded everything with like these, say, clear glass beads, they would start to say, OK, these clear glass ones are no, they're not they're not good money. We want the purple kind. But then, of course, over time, that, that the Europeans would adapt and say, OK, well, they want the purple kind now. So there was like this kind of cat and mouse game where, you know, beads were not fully fungible. There were different types. And so. There were different taste preferences, and then there were different reactions to the perceived scarcity of different types of beads. But eventually, that money became untenable for obvious reasons, that there was a technology asymmetry between the cultures. And then, you know, over time, that technology spread everywhere. And so beads are just not, glass beads are in the long arc of time, not good money. And it also, that shows 
that if you don't have hard money and and a it, or it, more like if your money is not hard and you're using if you're if you're using something as money that another culture or that some other group within your society can produce more of then you're at a disadvantage and and so that's kind of one of the tragic examples of you know why money is so critical especially when when different groups interact with each other let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors the dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting from finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. What is something really backed by? And you know, just keep asking why until you, until you have an answer. And, and one, of the, one of the stories I like to go back to is the story of, of Marco Polo and Kublai Khan. So we're back in the 13th century. And at the time, Kublai Khan and his administration came up with this great technology that could, that could make uh, money, paper notes out of mulberry tree uh, bark. And uh, so it, it was this neat size. It was, it was nine times 13 inches. And you might be thinking, that's not a great size for you know, you know, a note. 
but it was equivalent to a thousand coins, and a thousand coins weighed around eight pounds. So it was actually quite uh, quite efficient. And and to this story, uh, if you were a merchant uh, in Asia at the time, in Asia you would have generally holes in your coins, which you have some places in Europe, but not all of Europe. And so you put a string in, so it would make it easier to transport. But as you you needed more and more money, there was simply money demands. It was it just became really really heavy. For example, the word yen, uh, you know, the uh, Japanese currency, and they originally got their money from from China. It means round coin, so it, it's very integrated in uh, in society. And so that technology, having those thousand coins in one note, even though it was like nine times thirteen, it was very very efficient. And and before then, you 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 were trading mainly in, in silver and in silk, and so which also had had its uh, limitations. The problem about that system was that it wasn't really backed by anything other than you know the sword. Like it was all backed by if you do not accept this currency, a Kupla Khan would would have you hanged. So there was this this weird dynamic where you could enter enter his kingdom, and everyone would be uh, forced to give all of their belongings like gold, silver, silk, whatnot, and then they would get these notes in return. And it was perfectly fine because you can just walk around in that kingdom as long as that exists and get that, and you could. Everyone would accept that as currency. I know that was sort of like a bit of a, a detour, but as a geek, wanted to look back in history. I just, I just, it's so interesting learning about how money has has evolved. Then I would see if I can avoid turning this into a book club, but I can see like yet again, I'm holding up a, a book here, and the the name of the book is "Check Your Financial Privilege." You're referenced quite a few times in the book, and we had Alex on the show on the Bitcoin Fundamentals episode seventy one. And it's such a such a wonderful book. One of the concepts discussed in the book was that the fiat currency system created inherent instability because it allowed for the option of going to war. And specifically, it was also mentioned in the book how European powers went on and off the gold standard depending on the state of the two world wars. How do you think about the relationship between fiat currency and the ability to go to war? I think a lot of it goes hand in hand, but I wouldn't phrase it as it, it creates the ability to go to war because any any student of history knows that war, you know, goes back as far as our records go. It goes back way before fiat currencies. Um, but what fiat currencies do? So let's say without fiat currencies, right? Let's say let's say money is gold, for example. If a government wants to wage war on another country, they obviously have expenses to do that. They have to buy expenses. They might, you know, a lot of wars you 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 use external mercenaries, right? So for example, in the American Revolution, you know, Germans were, were used uh, in that war. And so basically there, there's equipment or, or soldiers that could be used uh, as well as their own, you know, paying their own citizens to drop what they're doing, say, okay, stop being a blacksmith, come fight this other group of people that you never met. So we'll, we'll pay you. Uh, and so wars are expensive. And so if gold is money, the government has two options to pay for it. One is that, you know, they have a stockpile of gold that they can start draining in order to do the war. That obviously has limits of how far they can go. And then two, if that does get low, they can tax their citizens. They can say, okay, we need a special war tax. Now, the problem with that is that those two methods are inherently limited. If you keep taxing people more and more for this war that they don't perceive themselves as benefiting from, you're increasing the odds that you're going to get pushback uh, and, and revolution. Uh, either they're, either they're going to stop voting for it, or if it's, if it's a kingdom of some sort, they have no voting power, they're, they're going to revolt. They're going to say, stop, you're still stealing my money to go kill people I don't know. Whereas what fiat currencies do is they give the government basically unilateral ability to drain value from the citizens 
without them knowing and without their permission right away. They only find out after the fact. So if everybody, say, no longer uses gold, but they own a currency that is, say, pegged to gold, the government can print a lot of that money, pay people with it, do all this, and then they, you know, over time, as that as that increased money supply trickles through society a year or two or three later, they start to realize how inflated their savings were. And only then, but war at that point had been raging for years. And so basically it, it gives the government a third ability. You know, if one country can't drain its citizens' wealth to fight a war and another one can, that, that second one has a better chance of winning, right? And so, you know, once this became possible, it's spread everywhere, right? If one if one entity can do it, you know, other entities either do it or they probably fail. And so, one of the arguments I make is that I, while I fully think that's true, I also think unfortunately it was inevitable. That going back to the whole thing where commerce, the speed of commerce due to telecommunications technology became faster than the speed of gold, so we had to abstract the gold, and that abstraction gave basically the government and policymakers arbitrage that they could then use in ways that they couldn't use before. It was much quicker for them to debase money uh, and, and much easier for them to control money. And so I, I do think that there is a lot of merit in the argument that the abstraction of money, either fiat currencies or you know, either, either you know, paper currencies that are backed by nothing or paper currencies that are backed by gold, but that can be depegged or devalued at a stroke of a pen, that those technologies basically do enhance a country's ability to do war which in the grand scale is a bad thing. We would prefer if globally there were more limits on war, but it's unfortunate that when this technology exists and one country exploits it, it can be everywhere. I would like to discuss the Triffin Dilemma. Please present to audience, first of all, what it is, and if, if we can still use some of the teaching from the Triffin Dilemma in a fiat currency world. So the Triffin Dilemma goes back uh, to uh, economist Robert Triffin. And basically it's, it's an observation that the, you know, that the domestic needs of a currency and the foreign needs of that currency, especially for a reserve currency, you know, or, or one of the reserve currencies, that those needs are often in conflict. And so it, it's kind of changed over time as our money changed over time. So it's been used in different ways. So back when it was proposed in like the 50s, for example, you know, he was basically proposing why the wood system would fail. So the United States had it, its the dollar's pegged to gold, other, current, other currencies peg themselves to the dollar, and he observed that this would eventually fail. And, and basically, the, 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 the failure point of that system was that the number of dollars were increasing substantially, uh, including foreign needs for those dollars. So basically, any bank, when they make loans, create more dollars, and broad money was convertible to gold by international creditors, even though it was banned for Americans to use, but international creditors could, could convert dollars to gold. And then even offshore banks, if they had dollars, they could also loan dollars and basically create more dollars uh, to, to a limited extent, but still possible. And so over time, the number of dollars greatly exceeded the amount of gold. And so you had gold drawing down, American gold reserves drawing down, and the number of dollars proliferating until that system became untenable. Foreigners have an incentive to convert those dollars to gold. Americans have an incentive to make that harder to do or discourage it or even say, look, if you keep doing this, we're not going to defend you against the Soviet Union. You're kind of annoying us right now. And so you had this kind of weird geopolitical dynamic where the domestic needs of the currency and the foreign needs of that currency diverged until the system broke. 
And then after that, the reformulated version basically took Triffin's kind of observation and then applied it to the new system. We can call it the euro dollar system or the petrodollar system, basically the, the fiat currency system that, that has been in place since the 70s, which basically goes around the, the premise that you know the United States has been the largest economy for that period, the largest naval power, right? The ability to go around and enforce uh, supply chains basically is, is the, the nation that's been able to project its power the most, is the one that's able to wage war on other continents more so than other countries can. And they were able to make agreements with, say, oil exporting nations. And they say, look, you know, only price your oil in dollars and then also take those dollars and hold some of our treasuries as your reserves. So no matter who's buying oil from you, only do it in dollars. And then in exchange, we'll, you know, we have all this military and capability. We'll help protect you. We'll sell you arms. We'll keep your oil supply chains open. And so we kind of purposely build up our network effect of the dollar even more than it already was. And of course, network effects compound on each other. So once you become the most liquid currency, the most dominant currency, the currency that most global debt is denominated in, it becomes rather self-sustaining. And so in that situation, the Triffin dilemma diverges a little bit because the observation then applies to the current account. Basically that the United States has created all of this external demand for its dollars. So the dollar is now stronger than you'd expect on a trade balance basis. So normally, if, if a country starts running a, a persistent trade deficit, you'd eventually expect some sort of recession or and leading to a currency devaluation that kind of tweaks that back to some sort of balance. Whereas by having this network effect entrenched for decades, the United States has run like you know 50 years of like widening trade deficits, uh, especially over the second half of that, especially over the past 25 years or so. We've run these massive structural trade deficits, current account deficits. And it's kind of, it never gets a chance to correct itself because of this network effect of all this foreign demand for that currency. And that, at first, that sounds like a good thing. Uh, you know, there's all this demand for a currency. It's so strong. It's, it, it, you know, it, it, it's good for all these different reasons. And of course, there are people that benefit, especially, you know, the, the military industrial complex, uh, you know, basically our, our ability to have foreign bases. Uh, by oil, project our power is enhanced by that. But the the weakness of that system is that our domestic manufacturing really suffers from that system. It becomes harder for American manufacturers to keep up, you know, let alone with emerging markets, but even with other developed countries like Germany and Japan that don't have that kind of extra overlay of currency strength. And so we run a a kind of a disadvantage in terms of keeping up with them. Now, there could be Obviously, situations like, for example, the recent energy crisis is impacting Europe more. And so, for example, that can impair German manufacturing competitiveness, as an example. But over the long arc of time, basically, Triffin's dilemma suggests that, you know, our, instead of drawing down our gold reserves to maintain the current system, basically, we're drawing down our domestic industrial base as a percentage of our GDP or as a percentage of global industrial capacity to maintain this system of persistent current. Uh, account deficits. And from the rest of the world's perspective, they're saying, okay, we have $13 trillion in, in dollar-dominated debt. We use the, the dollar as a global funding currency. So you, we need a steady supply of dollars to keep that system up. And that steady supply of dollars comes from, in large part, United States structural current account deficits. And so again, you have this dynamic where the rest of the world has a certain use for dollars and needs dollars. And the United States has a certain use for dollars and needs dollars, but those needs conflict with each other 
especially for certain groups that are that are most impacted by it one way or another. And so right now, I mean, after decades of this, you know, ever since the, the 70s, the United States has accumulated like $14 trillion in accumulated trade deficits. And foreigners then take those assets and they buy they, those dollars and they buy U.S. financial assets. So they, you know, we're basically selling our dollars for de- mostly depreciating assets, you know, manufactured goods out of China, things like that. And then they take those dollars and then they buy our appreciating assets. They buy our, you know, percentages of our real estate market. They buy a percentage of our stock market. They buy our bond market, which is maybe less appreciating, but, you know, they buy our financial assets after we gave them those dollars to get depreciating assets. And so over time, our net international investment position has become, it's the worst in the world in absolute terms. And it's also one of the worst as a percentage of GDP, where the, where the foreign sector collectively owns a lot more American assets than Americans own of foreign financial assets. Yeah. And on that note, I would like to talk about the private to public deleveraging. Usually that is a process that's inflationary. And then we look at a country like Japan, they managed to do it for decades without almost any price inflation and with very low uh, monetary inflation. But still many macro analysts, uh, they look at this and they sort of assume that, well, if, if this is what's happening to Japan, it's going to happen to the US, to the rest of the world, perhaps even. You think that they're wrong. Why is that? Two main reasons. One, they own a lot more foreign assets than the, the collective foreign sector owns of Japanese assets. So they actually have, you know, trillion, like a, you know, over a trillion dollars, trillions of dollars of, of claims, basically, that they can draw in to pay obligations as needed, right? So they have this large investment base relative to the size of their GDP. So that, that gives them one advantage that many countries now don't have, uh, especially the United States. Number two is that that whole massive private deleveraging and public leveraging uh, happened primarily during the 2010s decade, which was a very disinflationary decade in terms of commodity uh, markets. So, so there's roughly this you know, 10 to 15 to 20 year commodity cycle that happens worldwide where you know, prices are low, so nobody invests in commodities. They don't, they don't build new production. Uh, eventually, that causes a shortage. So lots of money rushes in for a decade and builds all sorts of new commodity production. And eventually, we, we oversupply the world with commodities, and then that breaks the price, and we start this, this cycle anew. And that's, you know, that, that takes quite a while. That takes you know, maybe 10 years of building and then 10 years of working it out and 10 years of building and 10 years of working it out. And most countries are not big enough to really affect that cycle. You know, United States and China are, but if you're a country that's a small percentage of GDP, you don't really affect that on a global scale. Uh, and so Japan happened to do this deleveraging during a time of substantial commodity disinflation or actually outright deflation. Commodities were literally going down in price while they were doing this. And so they, they basically had all the commodity you know, needs available to them at low prices. Uh, and you weren't getting this kind of scarcity and undersupply of commodities. Uh, that is a much harder thing to do if you're not at the right part of the commodity cycle or if you're big enough to affect the commodity cycle. And so I would argue that you know Japan represents an almost perfect example of doing this you know with the right conditions and at the right time that we shouldn't then just look at that and say, well, when the other when all the other countries go through a similar process, it's going to be just like Japan. Another actually third factor I would say is that, you know, unlike most countries in the developed world, 
Japan has very little political polarization or, or rising populism and tensions in the country. Um, and part of that's just how they, it's, you have a rather homogeneous society and they've governed pretty well domestically. Uh, they don't spend a lot of money on military, things like that. And so a lot of the money just you know goes back to the people. Um, and so you've, you have a rather harmonious society. That doesn't mean it's perfect. Um, there are obviously disagreements in society, but when you look at, at just quantitative ways of measuring political polarization, the United States and, and most European countries are in a much tougher spot there, whereas Japan has a rather harmonious society, rather low levels of wealth concentration. Uh, and so that gives them a, a deeper tool chest, I would say, to handle those storms. But of course, they, you know, their main disadvantages right now are that they are a commodity importer, which now is becoming relevant. Uh, and then they also do have now a ton of public debt. And so they, are, they have less ability to raise rates or otherwise protect the value of their currency because they, they can't really service that debt otherwise. And so I, I, think, I think people over-extrapolate the Japanese example um, by not realizing a lot of the nuances around the timing and the details for how they're able to do that without it being inflationary. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. 
Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So let's talk more about that. that it's, it's very hard to talk about Japan macroeconomic terms without, without looking at that huge debt burden they have. And we started out this interview by talking about forgiveness of, of debt, uh, restructuring. And so keeping that in mind, the listener might be sitting out there thinking, well, we do know that a lot of money is being printed and you know, that's on the Bank of Japan's balance sheet. Can't they just forgive that, like the government debt that they hold and thereby bringing down the, the debt burden? I know that's a, that's a question that you've, you've asked yourself. What's the answer to that? The answer is mostly no, and it is, but it is a good question, right? So people think, okay, so if the central bank buys a lot of the government bonds, and the central bank is more or less the government, why can't they just forgive the debt that they more or less owe to themselves? And just you know, so if 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 the Bank of Japan ends up owning seventy five percent of Japanese government debt, why can't they just wipe that off their ledger, and then they've they've lowered. Japanese government debt by 75% and they, they start fresh. Problem is that the whole kind of crux of this fiat currency system runs on the premise that a central bank and the government have some degree of independence from each other, right? Because if you have a dictator with absolute power over the money, that money is going to get debased a lot quicker, just the way human nature works. Even if, even if say, there's some philosopher king running a country as soon as he dies, the next one's going to be worse and he's going to mess it up, right? So someone, if, if you have centralized power, you're more, you're more quickly going to debase the money. Whereas if you have all these checks and balances that make it hard to create more money, like so you have to have Congress approve it, then you have to have the central bank finance it. You have to have the president not veto it, right? So you have to have all these different groups agree to create a lot more money. That really slows down. Uh, the money creation. And that's why you have, you know, countries with strong institutions and independent institutions generally have a much longer track record of, of maintaining a reasonably successful fiat currency compared to smaller countries with less, you know, histories of institutions. And then the institutions get co-opted by some more authoritarian type of, of ruler. And so going back to the premise, central banks are, at least in theory, supposed to be independent. And in, in order, and Obviously, in times of war and things like that, that independence gets seriously threatened. 
but it's still not like the president or a, a, a head of a country can just go and tell the central bank head to do exactly what he wants. If they do, they're more like a banana republic. They're more like this, like that authoritarian model. And so even though they might appoint the central bank chief, that central bank chief now has a term that can potentially persist through multiple administrations and that has checks and balances for how they can be removed, how a new one can be added, right? And so there's some degree of separation there. So a president can't just do something like cut interest rates three months before the election, boot, you know, make everyone happy, and then go back to having higher rates, right? So that you, they, can, they don't have that fine control over interest rates because it's in someone else's hands. It's supposed to be independent. And part of maintaining central bank independence is that they can't be insolvent, that they have to have assets that are equal or higher than their liabilities, because otherwise they're reliant on financing from the government and that they're entirely reliant on that government. And therefore, they no longer have any sort of credible independence. And so the way central bank balance sheets work is that the currency is their liability. So physical currency is their liability and bank reserves of commercial banks that are assets for them are liabilities of the central bank. So those are their, are their primary liabilities. And on the other side of that ledger, their assets are things like their primarily their government debt that they own. That's their key asset. And then depending on the different central banks, some of them have mortgage-backed securities. Some of them even have equities. But the, but the core of their assets is that government debt. And so if they were to erase that government debt and say, look, you don't owe us anymore. Uh, let's just start fresh. Well, now, the, now that central bank has a multi-trillion dollar hole on the asset side of its ledger, but still has all those liabilities. And so they are now a technically insolvent organization. They have no independence. They're entirely reliant on government financing. And so that whole model of, of some degree of credible decentralization goes away, credible uh, independence. Uh, and so while you might not have any sort of overnight effect from just say wiping away central bank you know, owned government debt. It's not like, you know, you wake up tomorrow and the currency hyperinflated. But going forward, that central bank is now 100% captured by the government, more or less. And so the, the long-term ability to do that degrades. And that's why most of them have laws in place to prevent that from happening, that you can't just, that the central bank can't just wipe it away. Now, there are, there are other tricks that they can do, right? So you could, for example, make, the government could issue a special bond that is like, you know, a hundred year bond that doesn't pay interest. You know, now you have this kind of bond that's different from the other government debt that doesn't pay interest. And so basically there are things that they can do like that. And there are other tricks they can do to kind of keep the ledger, the asset side, and the liability side technically solvent, but merely deleting the asset side is generally untenable the way, at least the way that we've structured this system now for you know a century or more in many countries. So if if we continue this discussion about the relationship uh, between the government or treasury, if you want, and uh, the central bank, then perhaps we can use the U.S. example. So in 1934, in the Gold Reserve Act, the Fed was required to give its gold to the treasury, and in return, because it is a double entry bookkeeping, uh, in return the Fed was given equal amount of so-called gold certificates. And these gold certificates, in theory, represented a gold claim, but they really didn't have any worth because they couldn't really be redeemed. But what this maneuver did was that it technically kept the Fed solvent. And fast forward, and we are looking at this huge debt burden. 
You've mentioned uh, three different options from the U.S. You briefly touched upon the 100-year zero-interest bond. One could talk about a revalue gold on the balance sheet, or we could also hold interest rates below inflation and effectively burn away debt. Could you please elaborate on these three options and what the consequences would be? Going back to the, what we talked about before, so over time, when we have this long-term debt cycle unfold, debt moves generally from the private sector up to the public sector. So you have some sort of private debt bubble pops. So the government comes in, prints money, and you know, does things that eventually get a lot of that debt onto the public balance sheet, this, the sovereign balance sheet, sovereign debt. And so that's generally what you saw in, in let's say, United States, for example, after you had the, you know, the, the global financial crisis, the subprime mortgage crisis, banks blow up, you, know, you started to see some degree of private deleveraging, but a lot more debt on the public balance sheet. And Japan's an even more extreme example where over the past, you know, call it two decades, you know, you had this, going into that period, you had a massive corporate debt bubble, just tremendous amounts of debt, corporate balance sheets. And over time, you had a lot of that drift over to, you know, they, they gradually deleveraged, but it was offset by the government leveraging up quite a bit. And so a lot of that debt was, was indirectly transferred from the, from the private sector, the corporate sector, to the public balance sheet. And the problem there is that there's really nowhere to go once it's at that spot. Uh, there, there's no higher place to put that, put that burden. It just, it's there now. And so when you have externally high government debt to GDP, really the only way around it is to default. But the question is, how do you default? You know, there's, there's polite ways to default, and then there's messy, messy ways to default. And so like, there's a study by, by, I think it was Hirschman Capital, that showed over the past 200 years, you know, every, every country that got over 130% public debt to GDP defaulted in one way or another over the next, call it, 15 years. They either inflated that debt away, or if they're an emerging market and they owe debt in a currency they can't print, like dollars, they just would outright default. They'd restructure, they'd, you know, they, they'd default in various ways. And actually, the only exception was Japan. They were able to push that longer than anyone else. Because again, they had really good conditions. They had huge net international investment position. They had a harmonious society. They had they did it all during a commodity bear market, or at least a big chunk of it. The worst part of it was during a commodity bear market. And so they had a lot of ways to push that longer than anyone else. But they're they're kind of the outlier. And so going back to your list of options, when you have super high government debt relative to the size of the economy to support that debt, assuming it's denominated in their own currency like we see in developed markets, they have a handful of options. Because as we discussed, they can't just delete that from the central bank ledger. They could, for example, they can issue, like I said, they can issue something that represents an asset that keeps the central bank whole, but that is different, right? So for example, in, uh, as you discussed, you know, they, the, the treasury in the US made the Fed give them all their gold, but that would have just made them completely insolvent. Uh, and so instead they gave them gold certificates the Fed could then have on their ledger that gave them legal solvency. And so you can have things like that where, you know, the government basically creates this unique type of bond, you know, directly or indirectly sells it to the central bank for printed money. And that just gets stuck there for decades. And, you know, it is a whole separate type of asset than normal government debt. And so you can have the money supply and the nominal GDP end up growing faster than the rest of that government debt pool because you kind of offloaded it onto this weird instrument. That, that's, that's one method. Another method 
is that a country can sharply devalue its currency relative to gold. And then therefore, basically, you've effectively you know, increased everything else. You've increased novel GP as measured in that devalued currency. You've increased asset prices as denominated in that devalued currency, while debt obligations are fixed, right? So you, you basically deleveraged uh, in that sense. A similar way is to do that over time gradually, where a country can say, look, you know, we're going to target 2% inflation, but we're going to hold bond yields. Like, let, let's use Japan as an example. Japan officially has a 2% long-term inflation target per year, but they're doing yield curve control where they're holding short duration rates below zero and they're holding long duration rates at 0.25%. And so they're basically saying that, you know, we're going to over time try to gradually devalue our sovereign debt compared to nominal GDP compared to nominal, you know, total total asset base in Japan. In most situations like this, it ends up being more extreme. So for example, the 1940s United States, we were fighting World War II. How did we finance it? Well, we've ran these absolutely massive government deficits to pay all the soldiers and, and manufacturing facilities and, and wages war. And then we, when they came back, we, pay, we, we paid those soldiers to go to college. We gave them, you know, we helped backstop their mortgages. We did all sorts of things that were all collectively very expensive. And the way we financed it was we basically captured our central bank and said, look, you're going you're gonna to make sure that our cost of debt is low. And so the central bank said, okay, we're going to keep short-term interest rates at near zero. And long-duration bonds, we're going to cap at 2.5% by being willing to buy an unlimited amount of them with printed money. And so that whole decade in the 1940s, we averaged 6% av- annual inflation while interest rates paid zero to 2.5%. And so we devalued a big chunk of that debt without hyperinflating it, without going too far. We, over time, gradually devalued that. And you, you even had years. There was like one year we had 19% year-over-year inflation while interest rates are still zero to 2.5%. And so that's, that's like kind of the third method where if sovereign debt is denominated in their own currency, they, over time, devalue that debt relative to nominal GDP and nominal asset prices by having inflation run much higher than interest rates. So the government is now basically borrowing at a deeply negative real interest rate. And then if they can eventually get their deficit under control, they can shrink their, their obligations relative to the size of the economy, which is effectively a form of default, but it's, it's, it's not a default as measured in the contract of, of their bonds. Let's continue talking about some of the things we learned during this interview and how to apply this in practice. If we talk about how to invest during a period of stagflation that you might argue that we now have entered. So stagflation is high inflation and then low or negative growth. And I know you looked into the performance of different asset classes during such a time. What can history teach us about the performance of, say, bonds, real estate, industrial commodities such as, such as oil, and monetary commodities such as gold? In general, inflationary periods happen in large part due to rising commodity prices, right? It's really hard to get a period of high sustained inflation if commodities are cheap, right? They're, they're kind of one of the key inputs for what causes, what contributes to inflation. And that can happen, of course, on both sides of the ledger. You can have the currency itself being rapidly devalued. Or you can have scarcity in the, in the commodity itself, causing that to go up against other financial assets. So either way, commodities are rapidly increasing in price. And so by extension, when you have this kind of inflationary environment, commodities tend to be historically the best place to be. So that's, that's kind of one of the most like, kind of, uh, highly correlated assets 
that does well in inflationary environments. Now, the, the challenge with that, though, is, of course, that they're very volatile. So even in inflationary environments, you can have sharp pullbacks in commodity prices. So commodities are one of the key places to be, but you have to put up with that volatility. So the general trend of commodities over time is that they're usually not very good performers over the long run. It's not a really good compounding places to capital, um, but specifically during inflationary decades is when they, they really shine. Because if you think about it, the traditional stock bond portfolio is actually a, a pretty disinflationary portfolio, meaning it prefers a disinflationary environment. Because obviously the bonds prefer disinflation, but then even the stocks, you know, they, they would prefer easy access to commodities, low commodity prices, high margins, right? So, so generally, when you have that inflationary environment, bonds suffer, but then also stocks generally run into turbulence. They have, they have margin pressures. They often face lower valuations due to higher interest rates and, and higher investor uncertainty about like, the future of those cash flows. And so generally, broad stock and bond indices usually, usually stagnate or suffer in those environments. Whereas specifically, besides commodities, uh, value stocks generally hold up pretty well. So if you go back to the 2000s decade, which was a, a somewhat inflationary decade, um, it was offset by globalization. So it was, it did, we didn't really feel it too much as an inflationary decade, but it, it was a rather inflationary decade, as well as the 1970s inflationary decade, as well as the 1940s inflationary decade. Basically, the three most inflationary decades of the past century, value stocks were major winners versus growth stocks in those environments. One way to describe it is that stocks that are at the top of an index are generally optimized for the, the environment that persisted over the past decade or so. Right. So in a disinflation environment, after a long period of that, you generally get a lot of growth stocks at the top of an index. You know, they're the biggest companies, the most successful companies. And then th when they encounter an inflationary decade, they're basically encountering, a, you know, they're overvalued and, and they're encountering now a, a period that's not well suited to them. And so they, they generally tend to suffer. Growth stocks tend to suffer. They're overvalued and their whole business model is kind of reliant on cheap access to commodities and, and you know, disinflationary growth. Meanwhile, a lot of the reasons why you have inflation is that you've underinvested in real assets. So commodity production, infrastructure to transport those commodities around, you know, maybe to make manufacturing, chemicals, whatever the case may be, a lot of more value-oriented type of sectors that may not be cutting edge, but they're necessary. And so generally for multiple reasons, you get that, that value factor outperformance compared to growth stocks. And that obviously can frustrate value investors during disinflationary decades, but tends to reward them during those more inflationary decades. So commodities, value stocks, and then often gold and other hard monies can do well in that inflationary environment, partly because, again, they're, they're a type of commodity, essentially. But then also, you know, other, compared to, say, oil and gold, I mean, oil and copper that are used for their utility value, something like gold is being compared to those treasuries or compared to cash in the bank. And investors globally are saying, you know, do I want to hold this asset that's only increasing in supply by 1.5% a year? Or do I want to hold this other thing that's going up at double digit percent in terms of supply every year? And you have to look at that both the individual level where they say, okay, as a household, do I want to have some gold? You know, maybe offsetting some of my bonds and cash. We can also look at the sovereign level. If a country is deciding where to put its sovereign reserves, does it want to invest in a treasury yielding 3% while inflation is 8%, let's say? Or do they maybe say, you know, we could actually increase our, our gold reserves here. We could even self-custody them so they can't be censored or confiscated by another country. 
but then they're also kind of inherently inflation resistant, maybe not year to year, obviously it's volatile, but over the very long term, I'm, I'm basically holding a much scarcer thing than a treasury bond that pays negative real interest rates. And so generally those harder monies, with historically gold being the, being the key example, do pretty well along with commodities with a little bit less volatility in those types of inflationary environments. In addition, you know, if you have appropriately priced real estate with a fixed rate mortgage attached, attached to it, that's also generally done pretty well in inflationary environments. So it did really well in the 40s, did really well in the 70s in the United States, and did really well in the 2000s. And so you basically have the, the value of the, the land, the, the property, the, the materials, the relative degree of scarcity, that's all going up in denominated in that devaluing currency while the debt attached to that property is fixed and therefore that's all getting devalued. So the home equity is actually doing pretty well. Now the challenge is that if, if you overpaid in the beginning, that can get can offset by, you know, the, the, the home value is kind of melting in real terms. And so for example, I'd be concerned about using that strategy in overpriced cities or many countries that are just overpriced in general, like Canada and Australia and, and China, you have very inflated housing markets. Uh, and so that strategy might not work as well. So really it kind of comes down to looking at more utility, more scarcity, more cash flow oriented assets and less paper assets and less disinflationary kind of like high growth, long duration type of assets. Lynn, this was just amazing. I learned so much reading your blog post, speaking with you and please give a handoff to your blog first and foremost, but really to anything you you want. I'm sure the audience would love to learn more from you. Yeah, so I appreciate that. This is definitely a challenging time with, you know, basically not only are asset prices changing around, we go from a disinflationary to an inflationary type of environment, and then are determining how long that inflation is going to last. All these different asset prices shuffling around, and then we're picking and choosing what, you know, to the extent that we want to hold money, what types of money are we going to hold, right? That becomes a whole, it's almost like investing in different monies. That becomes a whole problem of its own to sort through. So it's definitely in a, a challenging environment. And I have enjoyed kind of writing and researching and trying to share what I can out that. Most of my content is at lynnalden.com. And I'm also on, on Twitter at lynnaldencontact. Thank you so much for, for making time once again for the Investors Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.